All right, everyone, welcome to the latest episode of For What It's Worth podcast, where I ramble on about random topics that no one asked me to speak about. I don't know what episode this is. According to my phone, where I keep the notes for these things, it's uh, episode 67. That's 67 hours, hours of programming that is probably masterful. So sobbing is normal. You might, you might experience some bleeding as well. I'm in a friend's house in Santa Fe. I just recorded an hour-long interview with Paul Giroux, photographer friend of mine, for Blurb. And uh, that will be a, a Blurb online event here at some point. And uh, I'm sitting here with my enormous plastic bin of equipment and then one, two, three, four bags of equipment and a box containing my new 14-inch MacBook Pro from Blurb, finally, after a year. I've got this computer. I'm a little terrified of it. It's new. I don't like new things. And uh, I've got to set it up. First thing is a VPN and uh, then a 1Password piece of software. And I will be off to the races. My goal with this thing is to keep it as unloaded as humanly possible. As few programs that I can possibly get away with. And eventually, I would like to replace my 10-year-old uh, Mac trash can Mac, also from Blurb. I would like to replace that with something newer, like a Mac Mini or something. And uh, who knows? I have no idea. My allergies are so bad right now that I kind of feel like I'm underwater. My head, I feel like I have a water head and it, it is exhausting. There's been so much rain here in Santa Fe over the summer. We came back and everything is just overgrown. The hiking and running trails I'm normally on are just completely overgrown. And the ragweed is just, it's coming in hard. It's coming in hot and hot and heavy, and I am, like, about to lose my mind. My entire face itches. And so uh, if I lose it and end this early, you'll know why. But uh, for those of you who are new to this podcast, this is where I ramble about all kinds of events and things and random topics that I find interesting. Um, but you might be wondering, like, r what kind of topics and, and who really is this for? And so every week I start with, who's this for? And then we talk about our hero of the week, and we talk about the goat of the week. And I don't mean greatest of all time. I mean goat as in ass, as in burrow, as in donkey. And unfortunately, there's always more goats than there are heroes these days. That's just the nature of our culture and our world. But this, is, this podcast is really for anyone who's still wearing leg warmers. If you wear leg warmers on a regular basis, um, I think you're going to really like the content here. So welcome aboard. This, this is for you. I once saw a man in a leotard and leg warmers speed walking down the highway, the interstate in Dallas, Texas. And it seared itself into my subconscious, and it's not something I can ever forget. I never met him. I never spoke to him. I, I looked at him in the rearview mirror, and I was like, good on you, my friend. I don't have the guts to do that. But he did, and I'm sure he's still out there, maybe in the, in the monotard and the, um, and the leg warmers, but it, it left an impression that I, I cannot deny. So I'm going to say anyone who's still wearing those is, is, uh, is right in line with this podcast. And also, by the way, I have a call with my boss here coming up, so I need to, uh, to keep this short in Milner terms, which is under six hours. So the hero of the week, there are a couple. The hero, my hero, the, the obvious hero of the week is Roger Federer, who's announced his retirement not entirely out of the blue. And if you've, if you've lived on another planet for the last 25 years, you may not know who Roger Federer is. He's, he's considered by many to be the best male tennis player of all time. He's definitely in the discussion. He's been passed on the uh, Grand Slam tournament list by both Novak Djokovic and also Rafael Nadal. Rafa and Joker have passed him with 21 and 22, respectively. 
Federer has 20, but I don't think I ever saw anyone take over quite like Federer did. I also think he is the most effortless, graceful professional tennis player that I've ever seen. I absolutely loved watching him play. I thought he was just so smooth in the way he played. Rafa is like a blunt force instrument, but Rafa has the most incredible desire to win of any player I've ever seen outside of Jimmy Connors. Jimmy Connors, from, for, you, for you youngins, you might not know who that is. For the old people, you know who he is. Connors was a jerk, and he just did not care about anything else but winning. And Rafa has that same mentality, and it served him really well. And Djokovic is not my favorite player. I'm not a huge fan of his game, but he is an incredible player. And I remember the first time I saw him play in person was at the at the tournament out in um, Palm Springs, California, Indian Wells. And I was all the way up in the top row of the grandstand court. And it was an early round match. I think it was against David Ferrer. And no one was in the stands. I just went up to the top to, uh, for the novelty's sake to see how, how the view was up there. And I the sound of the ball coming off of Djokovic's racket. And this was before he became the guy he is today. I was like, holy cow. And he just backed Ferrer off the court. And I was like, that guy's going to be good. So anyway, Federer is a hero of the week. I think he's given a lot of enjoyment to a lot of people. He seems like a nice guy. I think he does a lot of philanthropic things as well. Family man, you know, kind of a cool, very, a good diplomat for the game of tennis. But the other hero of the week is anyone who survived a campground bathroom over the holiday weekend. Because a campground bathroom on a good day, even a, even a midday, midweek day, it is a place of terror. It is, it is a horrible construction, a place that you would not wish on your worst enemy. And to survive it over a holiday weekend when everyone is on their worst behavior, I just, I just want to give you a gold star for whoever got in and got out unscathed, who is not in therapy right now based on that experience. Okay, let's move on to GOAT of the week. Again, not greatest of all time. We're talking about GOAT as an ass, and there's a lot of them. Now, one of the big stories uh, playing out right now, which is, I have to admit, a fascinating story, is obviously this raid on Mar-a-Lago where Donnie took some paperwork that he shouldn't have had down to what the country club for whatever reason. I don't know. And everybody's up in arms. The left is up in arms, and the right is, of course, saying, this is nothing, whatever. You know, who cares? Trump could literally have heads on stakes in his office, and the right would say it's no problem. So everyone has completely and utterly lost their sense of reality and moral compass in this country. Everyone. Any, because everyone has taken a side, and it's just dumb. It's all caps dumb. But the thing that gets me is no one is talking about the carpet. That image of the top secret, super duper duper top secret documents on the floor, is it bad? Yeah, of course. That, that's not a good look for the president. Like if, if we lived in a country where there was still law and order and people were actually held accountable, he would probably already be in jail or he would been, he would been attacked under the Espionage Act. However, that's never going to happen. Our country's completely lost that ability as well. No one's talking about how bad that carpet was. That's the worst carpet. That's Vegas bad carpet. I can't get past the carpet in the photo. Yes, the taking of the documents was illegal and bad, granted. But somebody okayed that carpet, and I got a problem with that. So the carpet in the Mar-a-Lago photo is my go to the week. Now, there's a couple of other ones here. 
Instagram was fined another $400 million for lack of accountability when it came to the data security of 13 to 17-year-olds. So for those of you on Instagram, I will ask once again, after asking this every month since 2014, why are you still on the platform? Why are you there? How can you continue to make excuses? Another $400 million, which by the way for them is a drop in the bucket. It doesn't matter. He probably loses that in the couch every week. $400 million saying you lied again. You were supposed to protect this data. You didn't. Here we know why. So again, Instagram is my go to the week. Because remember, people, we're the same humans that became outraged when a U2 album was automatically planted, implanted on an iPhone when we bought that. Remember this uproar a couple of years ago? When the new iPhones came out, I don't remember what model, but suddenly there was a U2 album and all the snowflakes out there and the hipsters of the world, they were just so offended. They couldn't possibly take it any longer. And there was talk of blowback against Apple. That's the kind of people we are. We're the kind of species that's outraged about a free album. Yes, that's it. We've all sold out if you put a U2 album on your iPhone. What a bunch of hypocrites we are. Oh my God. Snowflakes are the worst. Hipsters, the worst. They've never met someone, I, uh, someone else's idea they don't like. Okay. Um, and the last go to the week is anyone who doesn't realize that just because someone holds one political party accountable doesn't mean that same person believes in the other political party. So if I say something like, the Democrats don't seem to have any policy direction whatsoever, that does not mean I love the Republican Party. That is just me pointing out the fact that the Democrats don't seem to realize they're in a street fight and that they don't really seem to have a whole lot of policies. It's not to say that there isn't good things coming out of the Democratic Party or they're not uh, good things that have happened in the past year or so, but they just seem kind of like they're asleep at the wheel. That doesn't mean I love the Republican Party. I'm just making a statement. We have become so radicalized politically that people cannot see straight. You cannot say anything about anything without people assuming that you are dug in 100% on the other side, which means that we are kind of the goats of the week, all of us. We're, we've all become just that jackass who just can't um, take a joke anymore. And lastly, the GOP for busing migrants to other parts of the country. This seems very, very bizarre to me. One of the most unprofessional, un-American things I can possibly imagine. There's a story that just came out today that a migrant was paid by someone to go recruit other migrants to get on the flight to Martha's Vineyard. This is just bizarre that this is happening in 2022 in the United States of all places, a place built on acceptance of, of refugees from other places. In fact, all of us are refugees from other places. And yet these bozos trucking and flying, who's paying for that? Trucking and flying migrants to other locations in the country that are quote unquote controlled by their political opposition. This is the probably the most savage, unprofessional, un-American thing I could possibly think of anyone even doing. I would have never, and I'm devious, I would have never thought anyone would stoop that low. But again, we have become such a quagmire of, of, of a country that I don't even know where to begin. So yeah, those are goats. Those are my goats of the week. This what podcast, let's recap. Who's this for? Anyone still rocking leg warmers? 
Number two, Hero of the Week, anyone who survived a camp, campground bathroom over the holiday weekend, you get five stars. And Roger Federer for entertaining a lot of people for a long time and just being kind of a normal, cool dude. Uh, and then the Go to the Week, the carpet in Mar-a-Lago. That's number one. I can't get past the carpet. A- anymore, the doc- nothing is going to happen to him over the documents. Nothing. It's all the, the whole system is completely turned inside out. He's appointed a lot of appellate court judges. That was a smart move on Trump's part. He just knew that when he violated the law at some point, that was going to come in handy, and it sure did. And so I don't think anything's going to happen to him, but that carpet is no excuse. I would put him in jail over the carpet first and worry about the documents later. Another go to the week, I Instagram find another $400 million this this week. Um, U2 songs on an iPhone causing outrage, so all of us are goats. And then these, these politicians bussing migrants and flying migrants around the country, that is a completely savage maneuver. And um, man, I wish, I wish at some point in my life, again, someone will be held accountable for this, but I don't think it's going to happen. So let's get to the points. Let us get to the cherished points of the week, which is why you're here. This is the meat and potatoes. This is the main course. Um, and I'm 93% uploaded Paul Giroux interview to the Blurb Frame account. So it's almost there for those of you wondering, inquiring minds. Point number one, okay, hipsters, psychedelics aren't new. If I see another hipster talking about psychedelic drugs as if they are the first person to discover it, I'm going to lose even more respect for the hipster nation because, holy cow, I just saw another interview with a hipster talking about psychedelics. And this is a hot topic right now. Everybody's doing ayahuasca. Everybody's doing psilocybin. They act as if this is something they just discovered. And remember, this goes back thousands of years when, when humans discovered psychedelic psychotropic plants. Pot was probably the first one that they discovered. The records and the indications of this go back for millennia. It goes back forever. So if you're a psychedelic hipster loving or a hipster loving psychedelic, hipster psychedelic loving person, just know you did not invent psychedelics and they are nothing new. Now they are becoming more and more mainstream, which is true. There's an ayahuasca church within walking distance of my house. That should tell you that. Now, apparently, in New Mexico, all psychedelic drugs are legal. I don't know that for sure, and I did absolutely no research, but I was told that by someone else. So things like psilocybin and and, uh, ayahuasca and those things can be done legally here, which is probably why there's an ayahuasca church in my neighborhood. I have not done ayahuasca, nor do I have any desire to do it. I think I would do psilocybin. I would do a guided psilocybin journey, if you, if you want to put it in those terms. I did read a book uh, last year called How to Change Your Mind, which has gotten a ton of press, and now it's a Netflix documentary series about this very thing. And it's by a well-known author who, who basically does his own experimentation, but he does it in a very controlled way. He's not like, I want to go party and, and act cool and make this into some sort of film. He's basically like, I'm curious about this. I'm going to break down each drug um, and there are a couple of things in that book. Michael Pollan is the author. A couple of things in that book that really kind of got overlooked that blew me away. One was the uh, psilocybin is the drug to me that I would like to do, but I would do it in a guided situation because knowing me, I would melt down and see like, I don't know, my inner child kung fu fighting with someone else's inner child and I would be scarred forever. So I would love a a coach or guide or someone that could shackle me to the bed sitting there. That would be kind of cool. The other thing that kind of gets glossed over in that book is the fact that he runs into a guy who, through a breathing practice, 
can apparently put himself in the same state where people who are taking ayahuasca and psilocybin are. And I was like, what? I need to reread that chapter because that sounds absolutely incredible. So I don't need the drugs. I can just do this through breathing and I can get myself to the same state. Can someone please explain that to me? Because man, next time I'm on a conference call, I think that would be kind of a nice little intermission, right? When people are talking about uh, forecasts for Q2 and profitability, I'd be like, be right with you. And then I would just be like, be like, I'd be in Jimi Hendrix world and you guys would be on the conference call. So that, uh, just a reminder to hipsters. Okay, I spoke too soon. My Paul Giroux upload is frozen at 93% and uh, has not moved since I mentioned that. So yeah, thanks. I just cursed myself. And uh, please hope this works. Oh my God, my tech woes continue. Okay, point number two is about Casey Neistat, the uh, famous YouTuber. Again, don't know him, never met him, probably never will. I have a lot of respect for this guy for what he did over the years, going all the way back before YouTube and creating a a very short-lived documentary program on HBO with his brother. Um, His brother is a very interesting guy that I've talked about here before, Van Neistat, who's based out in California. And Casey um, really became the, in my mind, became the YouTube superstar that launched multiple generations of YouTubers after him. And I, compared to what's out there today, his films are relatively simple, but he's always got a story to tell. I think his production was good, and he was a maniac, a maniacal machine in terms of output, unlike anyone I'd ever seen. He did something like 1,100 vlogs, a video blog, 1,100 in a row. I mean, multiple, year after year, day after day, every single day, putting out pretty much a high-quality little documentary about the day. Became incredibly well-known. He's created and started tech companies. He sold them off. He's probably worth upwards of 20 million bucks now. Um, he hit the wall, not, not unexpectedly. A couple of years ago, he hit the wall and decided he needed a change. He left New York, moved to Los Angeles, and really sort of took a step back from, from YouTube and making stuff. Not to say that I'm sure he was working in the background, but I don't really know what he was doing. But it was just recently brought to my attention by someone else who sent me this film that he has departed Los Angeles and returned to New York. And my first thought was hallelujah, because when he left New York and moved to L.A., in my mind, that just spelled one thing, that he was fundamentally broken and flawed. Uh, Los Angeles is my least favorite major city in the world, and I think it's populated by a specific kind of person. Not, not all, but many. It's a, it's a vibe that I never was in sync with. I never liked it. I think it's sprawling. It's polluted. It's expensive. It's absolutely choked with traffic, like horrible, horrible traffic, which you never think can get worse. And every time I go back, I realize it has gotten worse. It's just not my place. I know a ton of other people that love it, a ton of people that live there and love it. I just never did. But remember, I grew up in a town of a small town in Indiana and then a town in Wyoming that was a town of six people. So the den- urban density and the population density in California was not something I ever was in, was in love with. And I also never liked the permeation of Hollywood through so much of the culture. But um, Casey left and went back to New York. And I think this is fantastic. I think what you're going to see is the next version of him that will emerge because New York is so much a part of who he is. And I was excited about that. And I think that this guy is, um, is really someone, if anybody's interested in YouTube, his story is a pretty interesting one to know about. And I have 
a lot of friends who are anti-YouTube. It's not that they don't watch YouTube, but to become a YouTuber, they for some reason feel is either too difficult or it's beneath them. You know, they kind of look, they're on YouTube all the time, but they look down on it. Or they look at it like, oh, I would never do that, man, having to make a film, you know, once a month, whatever it is. It's a kind of a weird kind of thing. But for those folks out there and for you to kind of think, think about this, he had 100 million plus views before he turned on the monetization for his YouTube channel. So let me, let me just refresh that. Let me repeat that. He had over 100 million views before he turned on monetization. And the first month he turned it on, he made 6,000 bucks from the monetization. And in his, his words, he was like, whoa, 6,000 bucks, like that pays the rent, that does a lot of stuff, I can't believe it. And the next month it was 16,000 from the turning on his monetization. And the following month it was 60,000, six zero. $60,000 a month times 12, but, but wait, there's more. And then it was six figures a month. So for those of you out there who are, who bash a guy like Neistat, who again, I don't know, he could be a, a maniac in his, uh, when he's not on YouTube, but I give the guy credit. That is F you money. That's the kind of money where you don't have to do anything else. You can do whatever it is you want to do. And he kept doing 60,000 a month. I mean, even 6,000 a month. That's pretty fantastic for a lot of people. 16,000 is great. 60,000 is a pipe dream for me. Like, holy cow. And I mean, I, I'm in no danger of ever having 100 million views on YouTube. But I have to say, I'm impressed by that. That's a pretty interesting thing. And again, I'm not driving saying wealth is the primary destination here. I'm saying wealth is a byproduct of a guy doing what he wants to do. And I don't know about you, but I would love a life where all I had to do was what I want to do. That would be very interesting because money to me speaks to freedom. It's not perfect. It's not the solution. It's not the be-all, end-all. But it gives you freedom to be and do some of the things that you want to be and do. And so I, man, I got mad props for the guy for doing that. And if I could make a f if I could make films like he's making and walk away with six figures a month from YouTube, I would be doing it right now. Trust me. So if you're, if you're down on YouTube, if you're down on people doing this kind of thing, maybe you have to uh, reassess. Or you still could look at it and say, I don't want $100,000. I want to live in the Walmart parking lot. And I'd be like, cool. I just spent the night in one a few weeks ago. So I'm right there with you. Point number three, I don't like concerts. Yes, I just said that. I just said it, and I know that some of you live for going to concerts. Mark, I know you're out there. You love concerts more than anything else. I don't like them. I never have. I'm not cool. I don't know what to do. I don't have my arms in the air. I don't sing along. I'm completely self-conscious. I look around me and think that everyone is looking at me, which is completely egotistical and horrible. I don't know what to do. It's not to say that I haven't been to concerts in the past that I've enjoyed. My brother and I had some incredibly wild times at concerts where there could, there may have may not been fights involved. There may or may not been incredible amounts of alcohol combined with luck that kept us alive. Yes, those things happened. I've got some good memories. My wife went to a concert last night and I just, she showed me some images and I was like, I'd rather eat a light bulb. I would rather consume a 60 watt light bulb then go through what you did. It's a crowd. It's a bunch of people. Again, 
I don't know what to do. I don't like concerts, and I just wanted to get that out in the open. The second thing I don't like, now that we're talking about uh, things I don't like, thank you for asking, Burning Man. Oy vey, am I over Burning Man. I've never been. I have no interest in going. And here is why I'm over Burning Man. And again, if you're into Burning Man, more power to you. I know people whose entire year is centered, they're burners. Their entire year is centered around Burning Man. The, the planning every month, every day, every week, they are planning for the next year's Burning Man. They're building stuff. They're equipping their vehicles. <clears throat> they're, they're making clothing. They're fabricating bicycles with flowers on the front. They're doing everything they possibly can because Burning Man is literally the centerpiece of their entire year. And guess what? I'm happy for them. If they love it, love it, move on. You know, I used to like Sesame Street. A lot of people don't like it. I get it. Burning Man for me, the reason I don't like it is a friend of a friend went to Burning Man like the second year that it was Burning Man. And I don't remember what, what year this was. I'm just going to throw a stab out there and say this was 19-whatever, 1990. So a friend of a friend who was a European photographer did a black-and-white photo essay on like the not the first year of Burning Man, but maybe the second. And I saw these images in Los Angeles, and I was like, wow, that is unique. I've not quite seen anything like that. And my second thought was, it's already over. Because the second the hipsters find this, the cool people find this, the wealthy people find this, it's over. It will become basically what I see today. And I, the, anytime I see anything, I just recoil and go the opposite direction. It's just, again, I don't like crowds. I don't like big events. And I just don't like anything about Burning Man. I, ne I never have, except for that original photo essay that I saw that I was like, wow, that is pretty fantastic. I also know someone here in, in New Mexico who, who does really engage with Burning Man and has done some pretty fantastic photography projects revolving around Burning Man. But for me, it's just not my thing. I just don't like it. I'm not, I mean, I've stated this many times before, and it's pretty obvious. I'm not cool. I never have been, and I never will be, and I don't like crowds, and I have no interest in that event whatsoever. So uh, not, not that any of you were asking. Okay, point number four is a bit of a, this kind of, kind of caught me by surprise, but also made me laugh. Let's talk a little bit about the war on drugs, right? The, the war on drugs has been one of the most expensive failed missions in the history of our country. It was based on flawed ideology and has continued to have been based on flawed ideology. America is by far, by far the world's largest consumer of illicit drugs. We are. We excel at it. It's one of the best things that we do. We get high by the droves, and we get high all the time. Ride your bicycle around any town, any city in America, and you will smell nothing but marijuana the entire time. And people are doing enormous Scarface bowls of cocaine any chance we get. We love methamphetamine here in New Mexico. It's our specialty. We love it. We love drugs here. Mexico happens to produce these drugs. They also happen to produce some of the most incredible drug cartels in the world and have consistently. It's one of their specialties. We've all seen the programs. We've seen Breaking Bad. We've seen Narcos, which I love both of those programs, by the way. Um, but something happened the other night that I watched that I thought was pretty hypocritical and also kind of hilarious, where apparently there is a pitcher for, I want to say, the New York Mets, whose last name is Diaz. And when Diaz, he's a, he's a reliever or a closer, something like that. He's a pitcher, but maybe a reliever, maybe a closer. When he comes into the game, 
There is a guy named Timmy Trumpet, who I've never heard of, but apparently he is a virtuoso trumpet player. And he plays with his trumpet over the sound system at the stadium a song to introduce Diaz into the game. And the song is called Narco. So on one side, we have politicians up in arms. We have kind of the right-leaning, whole entire right-leaning section of the country up in arms about the border and the influx of immigrants and the influx of illegal drugs. And yet here we are in New York City cheering and celebrating a player coming into the game under the, the banner of the song Narco. Is it me or is that not just slightly hypocritical here? Now, I listened to about 20 seconds of the song. The dude's a damn good trumpet player, and the song is really cool. So look, I'm not, I'm not a hypocrite. I've been to the border a thousand times. I've been to Mexico a bunch. I've studied the drug war from every single angle humanly possible. I live in New Mexico. I've got a pretty decent understanding of the history of drug infiltration into America, when it started to happen, who it's tied back to, who the first major players were. This is fascinating to me. I would never call myself an expert, but I'm interested, and I've gone out and educated myself as much as possible. I think the entire drug war itself is completely hypocritical because, again, we are the biggest demand in the world. If we, if we wanted, I don't know, cantaloupe more than any country in the world, guess what? Mexico would be lining up doing cantaloupe. Canada would be selling cantaloupe. That's just the way it is. It's supply and demand. The drug war has never had any chance of actually winning. We've never had any chance of winning that war. And for me, even the corruption side of it and the illegal military deals and the illegal troops on the ground in places and all of these things, I'm fascinated by it. I'm not even pointing a finger at anyone. I'm just saying I find the whole thing fascinating and interesting, but also wildly hypocritical when we're celebrating a player entering a game under the name, under the song Narco. I found it hilarious. Okay, point number five. Pickleball is the dumbest game I've ever seen. I'm sorry. Someone has to say it. I, what's, a, what's a sport that's come and gone? Rollerblading. Okay, pickleball is the next rollerblades. Rollerblading, if I see anyone on rollerblades today, normally from about a quarter of a mile out, you know something's not right. Something is wrong. They've had some traumatic experience in their life to still be on rollerblades. I kind of feel like in 10 years, pickleball is going to be the same thing. I saw someone playing it the other day, and I was like, what? What is that? And I looked at it and was like, what, is the tennis court too big? Are you, are, you, are you a bit too lazy to get around the old uh, tennis court so you needed to, to miniaturize the game? I'm sorry. I know this is a professional sport now. I know there's a league. I know that my beloved Drew Brees of the New Orleans Saints, ex-New Orleans Saints, the greatest football quarterback in the history of the world, I know that he wants to be a professional pickleball player. Drew, no, stop now. Stop before we have to put you on the show intervention. I don't want you playing pickleball. Maybe at night in the dark with a headlamp somewhere in the countryside where no one else can see you, sure. But I don't want you on a pickleball tour. I don't like it. I would rather watch the World Archery Championships, which I think is actually really cool. Even the redneck ones where they're in like a barn and everybody's wearing like ropers and wranglers and cowboy hats and they're shooting like fake deer from across the barn. I love that. I'll take that over pickleball. I don't want to catch any of you anywhere at any time in any country ever touching a pickleball racket or a ball. 
If, if you do and I find out, you will be banned from this podcast forever. I just had to get it out there, people. I had to. I, the hype machine is in full effect trying to sell us all on pickleball. Don't even think about it. Do not think about it. Uh, let me check here and make sure that I am not dropping the ball on. I had my email program closed. So if my boss has changed the time of our call, I might have missed it. And she could be waiting for me for six minutes. Here's the thing. My old laptop, which I'm still using, it's scary because I, I hit a program like Microsoft Outlook or Premiere, and it might take five minutes for the program to open. It just bounces up and down. Bing, bing, bing. The icon goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And I'm like, oh, God, that's not good. So, okay. Ooh. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, oh, God, it hit me with the sign-in. Oh, no. Oh, this is not good. Um, oh, no, this is not good. Allow, allow, please. Why does it do this? Why does it do this? Okay, it opened. Oh, you know, the thing is, one of the first things I'm putting on this new laptop is that one password uh, thing because... I've got so many, someone asked me the other day, like, why don't you just write them down on a piece of paper? And I'm like, what? What is this, 1965? Number one, I would never travel anywhere with that piece of paper because that has all your passwords on it. And two, I've got like 100 passwords that I have to keep managing. And all the blurb things reset after every couple of months, so you have to keep continuously do that. And the whole saving them into the Google chain never works. It never remembers the same, the right password. And so I'm constantly getting locked out and having to go to IT to get back in. So I'm going to do that. And um, as of right now, she has not changed the call. So that's good. I'm going to keep going here. So pickleball sucks. That was point number five. Point number six, I got my hands on a Fuji X-H2S, the original one. Um, and uh, I was able to do some testing. I think I mentioned this in one of my recent films that I did this testing. And I needed to make a, make a change with my camera equipment because I need to go from two systems to one. I just want to simplify and blurb travel again is potentially on the table and I cannot get on a plane with multiple systems. I just don't want to do that. I want one camera, two lenses, a small rig and my mics and that's it. Potentially in the long run, a second camera body because if you've got a small rig, let's say that I have an X-H2S and I put a small rig on it, it's hard for me to shoot stills with that camera because that rig is kind of, uh, you know, it's a little bit unwieldy in the sense that it's not a camera that I want to walk around and shoot stills with. Secondarily, if you have a camera go down, you at least want a second as a backup. Um, right now, I have an X-T2 that I can use as my still cameras, but those are getting long in the tooth. I think I've got some dead pixels, and there's some broken parts on those cameras, so they're not going to last forever. So I will probably end up with a new camera by the end of the year. Could be the new X-H2, the 40-megapixel version. That thing looks really nice. But here's the thing. I know that when these cameras came out um, with, on YouTube, with, uh, literally overnight, there were a lot of people who got like early access to the camera. A lot of people went to the big Fuji event in New York, which looked, looked pretty great, and they got their hands on it, and they were able to spend, quote-unquote, a couple of hours with it. And, of course, everyone did YouTube films um, about it. I did not watch any of those. Those films are not really helpful to me. Um, I could tell within probably a minute and a half with the camera, whether or not it was going to work because all I did was put it on the little mini tripod and I checked to see if it would follow focus and it did. And I was like, great. And it's whatever. The new one is 40, meg 40 megapixels. I don't really see needing more than 40 megapixels. In fact, a friend of mine called me last night. He's a Sony photographer 
and he's going back to older Sony cameras with smaller megapixel counts because he said these 40 and 60 megapixels are over overkill. Uh, they take up too much space. They're too slow. And so he's going back to like their 24 megapixel version. And he said that's kind of the sweet spot for him. And he's doing prints and shoots and all kinds of stuff. So that, you know, if it works for a guy like that, it's definitely going to work for me. And so the Fuji X-H2 was really nice. It's a little bigger than the cameras that I'm used to using, but with the small rig, with the grip on the left-hand side. So the grip is in my left hand and the right hand is around the grip of the camera body. And there was a road mic in the top and I could easily handhold footage, not running around after people and doing quote unquote cinematic shit, but just really holding the camera steady without using a tripod. And that is, is really what I'm after. And the goal for me here <clears throat> is to have primarily one camera body and two lenses. And I want to make black and white films with the 2314 and the 3514. That's it. I just want to use those two lenses and I want to make my films in my style the way that I see with that. And literally, I don't need to watch anybody's film. The menus on the Fuji are incredibly intuitive. They're very, very simple. They look like the menus I've been using forever. 40 megapixels with this new camera, which I have not seen because I was using the X-H2S, which is the one that came out first, which was 26 megapixels, I think, somewhere around there, 24, 26. Um, it, the capability of the camera was immediately identifiable. It was not something that I needed to go, gee, does this work? Does it not work? Whatever. It just worked. And so, and also the price point of these cameras are fantastic. Now, down the line, um, because I was able to borrow an X-Pro3, I immediately, I love that camera. It reminds me of the Leica. It's very very light. Uh, it's a cool thing. I think whenever the next version of that camera comes along, that will potentially be my backup camera because... It's just more of a still-specific, reminds me of the old days camera. But the Fuji X-H2 is really nice. Um, I, you know, I'm sure, is it a perfect camera? No. What the flaws are, I don't know. I mean, am I using it at a level where even if there is a flaw, is it going to matter? No. I would much, and I, 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 did, I gave a class yesterday. I taught two days this week, and I spoke to the students yesterday about this. It's the same analogy that I'll give you in the book, bookmaking world. You have a subset of people who get obsessed over color in their photo books. And they're primarily, these folks are geeks. And they obsess over color management. And they hold their photo books up to the window and get a loop and start looping through their negatives or the book pages. The only people that ever do that are other photographers. No, no member of society will ever hold a book up to a window and look at it that way. Nor do they care about the color fidelity of the book itself as long as it's in the ballpark. The general public wants to be entertained and they want to be educated and they want a good story. That trumps all the geeky crap that you see online. All of these YouTube channels that are gear review, gear review, gear review, they are not only wildly boring and a waste of time, none of that matters. The, the, if whether I shot a photo essay with a Sony A7C or a Fuji X-T2 does not matter. What matters is the work itself, the quality, the cohesiveness, the depth of that work, and how I present it. Now, on a personal level, those cameras may make a difference because you fall in love with one brand or another. You fall in love with the look, a feel, etc. But once you've done that, that is all that matters. That will never, ever be a part of the conversation. And by the way, when you're in the professional field and you're doing professional assignments for professional clients... Outside of the fact that occasionally a commercial or advertising client will want to know the camera that you're using based on file size, but those days are pretty much long gone because everything now, the files, you know, Fuji's GFX system, 
100 megapixels, I mean, come on, there's no more debate. Back in the early days of digital cameras, sure, if you were using a little DCS 560 versus a Canon 5D, yes, the 5D had a had a distinct advantage over that. So a client might, might have been interested, but I have not heard that conversation in a long, long time. It is about the quality of work. When you go to a portfolio review and showing your work to an art buyer, an art director, an agent, or whoever, they are never going to ask you about your camera system. It, if they did, it's embarrassing because they would just be out of questions to ask or not interested in your work. So I, again, the, the bulk of photo reality on YouTube is built for YouTube. It's just built for views. It's not built for any relevance in the industry itself. And again, in my, my mind, a minute and a half with the X-T2, getting a feel for it, looking at the focus tracking and saying, okay, this camera works, period. That's all I need to know. Point number seven, I want you to realize something. And last, uh, for what it's worth, I also mentioned how you know we, we consider ourselves to be a sophisticated country, but at one point in time, our highest pinnacle in the art world was the trucker film, right? In the 70s and 80s, trucker films were, were all the rage. But I also wanted you to know that, we, you know, again, we consider ourselves super sophisticated. And then I realized that for half of America, racing your illegally modified pickup through a Walmart parking lot is considered a mating call. So I spent the night in a Walmart parking lot. I can't remember what state it was. It might have been Kansas or Indiana. And I was born in Indiana. I don't ever want to go back there again. It's not my favorite place. Um, but I was overnighting in this Walmart parking lot, and there were guys in diesel pickups with no hoods who, have like, who had like cut the exhaust off and made those big smokestacks in the back. And they were racing through the Walmart parking lot. And I, in the words of a friend of mine who um, we were pulling into a 7-Eleven parking lot in Phoenix, Arizona once, and a guy pulled up in a hot rod with no hood, and he looked like Joe Dirt. And he got out, and he had, like, no shirt, no shoes, and his hood was off. And he, he had, like, an 86 Buick Cutlass that he'd lifted in the back and had, like, a giant hood scoop. And my friend looked at me and said, you know what? You and I look at that guy and we go, man, what a what an oddball. And he goes, somewhere out there is a woman who looks at him and says, that guy's the cat's ass. And I was like, you're probably right. There's some woman who looks at him and says, that's my dream dream man. And so when I saw these guys racing through the Walmart parking lot, I was like, someone out there thinks this is cool. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. But that's our country, right? That's the entire, I was going to say middle section of the country, but that's not accurate. It's everywhere. You ever been to Maine and New Hampshire? Oh, yeah, they're doing it up there as well. Ever been to Southern California? Southern California has more rednecks than any place in the country I've ever been. Let me repeat that. Southern California has just as many or more rednecks than anywhere else in the country. They might drive BMWs. They might have six- and seven-figure jobs, but don't get me wrong. They are rednecks. I grew up around rednecks. I actually like rednecks, uh, and they're there. So that's our country. If you go thinking we're super sophisticated or you go thinking that we're better than Mexico or Venezuela or wherever else, China, think again, baby. We got our own problems. Okay, point number eight. I got a question for you. North Face or Patagonia? North Face or Patagonia? If you're going to buy something from one of these companies, which one would you buy from? Now, you lefty snowflakes out there, I know you got a hankering for some Patagonia. Now, they made the news this week because Yvonne Schoenard basically gave the company away, $3 billion company, blah, blah, blah. It's not technically like saying, here, take it. But, you know, it was an interesting move that's atypical. I'll just leave it at that. 
Um, he is a lightning rod for disgust. I think I have people that friends that love the guy and other people that think he's like a, I don't know, communist, socialist, um, you know, red kind of person. Um, I love the fact that Patagonia has always tried to do things a little bit differently. I do like that. Are they a perfect company? No. Can you be a multi-billion dollar company and be perfect? No, I don't think so. I think that that's an impossibility. North Face, on the other hand, is a massive company, even quite a bit bigger than Patagonia. And they've had ups and downs. They've come close to bankruptcy over the years. They've been bought and sold to a variety of different people over the years, big conglomerates, individuals, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I always find it interesting because people tend to draw a line in the sand and they're either one or the other. You don't often find people that buy North Face and Patagonia. Typically, people go in, in each way. But to me, it's an interesting question because I think they both make good equipment. North Face, for example, sponsors people who I find really interesting. They sponsor people like Alex Honnold and Jimmy Chin, Conrad Anker, and these people. I find them interesting. They're out doing stuff. So in a way, North Face is laying down some cash for these people to go out into the field and do things. They're supporting expeditions. Patagonia is it as well, but probably on a smaller scale. And their, their superstars don't seem to get the same kind of attention that the North Face does. But again, producing this kind of this amount of goods over this global atmosphere, you're going to you're going to leave a mark on the planet that is really a scar that no one can take away. But I'm just curious. I've had I've had um clothes from both companies uh in the past. I've got a Patagonia fleece like I don't know what you would call them. They they were they're not long underwear and they're not pants. They're kind of in the middle. They're made out of the recycled material. They're in they're indestructible. I've had them for 25 years. And they look exactly like I did when I got them. I don't use them anymore. I haven't worn them in years because I don't even know what they are. They're like a weird, it's kind of like that ghillie suit that a sniper would use without all the tree limbs on it. And they're strange. If I wore them into a store now, people would look at them and go, what is that? What are you wearing? And so I don't, they're, they're impervious. I just don't use them anymore. And I've had some North Face stuff over the years, but it's been a long time since I've had North Face. I tend to end up buying from smaller companies. Uh, I have a ton of clothing from Beyond, which has probably held up better than any outdoor clothing I've ever had. And then I also have a couple of uh, uh, things from smaller companies that are out there in the, in the outdoor world. I've got some um, Cotopaxi gear. I've got some, um, what's it called? Wilderness Systems or something. I think they're out of Utah. Um, I've got some of their pants I really like. But anyway, I'm curious about you guys, North Face or Patagonia? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, number nine, point number nine, have you seen these? I think they're called recourt people up in Idaho, um, uh, who are going into the libraries and threatening the librarians about having books. And they're, they're basically threatening libraries who don't have the books that they're threatening about. So these clowns haven't even done the research to know if the books are in the library, but they're showing up armed and they're saying, you guys can't have these books in here. Now, I don't know exactly what, what has gotten under their skin about these books, whether it's a, a bunch of, you know, most of the time it's stuff that they fabricated, this critical race theory or the white replacement. You know, most of these people are incredible racists, number one. But also, isn't it odd? I saw a little film of a woman threatening a librarian. It was a woman threatening a female librarian about these books. And the woman doing the threatening didn't seem to have any real knowledge of what she was talking about, let alone the librarians like, you numbnuts, we don't have the book here. So, you know, take, take your rage down to the, to the Taco Bell. Like maybe they've got something, you know, go after tomatoes or something. But isn't it funny how the most religious are often the most violent and in love with everything that goes against the will of God? 
So they are the most religious people, are often the most violent people, and often do most of the things that are, are vehemently spoken about in the Bible as bad things to do, but for somehow they twist it into their religion of making it right. So when I'm watching this woman threaten the librarian, I'm like, what part of religion is this? Like, did I miss? Because like, what I couldn't stand going to church as a kid. My father failed every generation to get our family to go to church. Now, the only thing I loved was Sunday school, which was in the creepiest old farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. If you were going to look for body parts, this would have been a great place to look. It was next to a swamp, too, another great place to find body parts. But I, this place was dingy and gross and creepy, and I couldn't stand any of the people in the church because they were creepy, too. But we played Red Rover when Sunday school was over, and I was like a badass when it came to Red Rover. So I was like, okay, whatever I have to endure to get to Red Rover. That was my takeaway from Christianity was if you endure this, you can play Red Rover. That wore, wore off pretty fast. And so as I got older and my father, for some misguided, deranged idea— thought that he would make our family go to church. And my brother and sister and I and my mom were just having none of it because we would go and look around and be like, this isn't about religion. This is about who else is here, what they're wearing, what they do, and the gossip of what's happening in the, in the congregation. And I was like, I'm over it. And so he tried and tried and tried until like the 80s when we were in San Antonio and John Hagee was running this big, massive church in 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 San Antonio and he was like he would get up on the pulpit and just like yell at people and insult people and my dad's like we're gonna go to John Hagee and I was like "Uh, no we're not and so and then Hagee had got busted for doing something as they all do he did did something I can't remember what it was but you know it's completely against the teaching of the church and of course there was not exactly being upfront about the whole thing and you know what happens with this these folks and my father finally was just a broken man you know he looked at us and was like you people are all going to burn, and we're like, great, we'll see you there. So um, uh, the Recourt Idaho thing, Idaho's like teetering on the line right now. Idaho's teetering on this place of like we want to secede from the nation and all that stuff. But it's just, again, there's such flawed ideology with all of this stuff. And I wish everyone would just like take a deep breath, shotgun a beer, and just relax a little bit. Okay. Point number 10 is about the one in 1,000 year flooding that we're seeing, and it's 112 degrees in wine country. Uh, Not a big shock there. I think weather has been all over the place. Here in New Mexico, we've had a very, very wet summer. It's been one of the best summers forever. I was not here, but the, the data is there. That's a wonderful thing. It's 112 degrees in wine country, and we've seen flooding all over Pakistan. We saw flooding in the U.S. in the southern parts. Uh, Italy's flooding as we speak right now. I think these extreme weather things are going to become more and more prevalent. That's what the data suggests. But, you know, I I don't see—I think the media has overplayed this coverage to a tremendous degree because every time there's a weather event anywhere, even if it's on par with with weather events of the past and the data is sort of right in the middle, the media's first response is let's just over-report this to make it seem more dramatic than it is. And that really doesn't help in the long run because, you know, if you're in Texas in the summer, it's hot. Was this summer beyond ordinary? Yes. Even even my hardcore Texas-loving friends and family members who've been there for 50-plus years, even some of them for the first time in my life said to me this year, this is bad. Like, this is really bad beyond what I've seen before, what I've experienced before. Um, I was going to do a cycling trip in October, it's September actually, 
out in West Texas. And the person I was cycling with said, look, we can't go in September. Like we have to go earliest is going to be October now. We, and we used to do it. We used to ride out there in September. He's like, look, it's just not going to happen. The heat is just too oppressive now. It's moving further into the fall months. So we're looking at October. I can't go now because I've got three days of blurb, sort of live event stuff that we're doing. And it coincides exactly with the time that I would have been cycling out there. And as I mentioned before, my uh, which I haven't mentioned on this podcast, actually, my Salsa Fargo, my beloved 10-year-old Salsa Far- Fargo frame snapped. And I'm going to add that in as a special point, because, um, which I'll get to in a minute. Remind me, people. Remind me. Someone put your hand up. All I'm saying is all of these extreme weather events, I think, are being overplayed. Not to say they're not happening, but we can't overreact to each one because it deadens us for when the— it deadens us in understanding the overall shift and change. And again, this is not a political issue. This is a science and nature issue, not politics. Politics has nothing to do with this. The, temp- the temperature—and again, this is based on factual information. The, the temperature in Santa Fe, the high today, is 77. So if we hit 77, that's a fact that it was 77 in Santa Fe. All of this weather stuff is based on data. It's not based on politics. So we just have to study the data. We can't politicize it. We just have to study it and say, is this a trend developing? I think we're going to continue to see these things. And oh, by the way, oh, shit. The lake levels in the West are scary. I'll come back to that next time. Let's talk a little bit. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sw- switch out this point. Um, I was gonna talk about um, Cui Griffin, who's the Otero County guy down in southern New Mexico, who just got barred from holding any further office by the judge because of his role in January 6th. And the, uh, the reason I brought him up was he's been around for a long time. This story's been around for a long time. But he said something that I just thought was incredible. He said, I don't have any facts or data to support my position. I just went with my gut. And I thought, if that doesn't personify American politics right now, I don't know what else does. But I'm going to skip that point and go straight to salsa. So in 2013, I bought a titanium salsa Fargo drop bar adventure bike. In 2013, this was a novelty bike. Gravel bikes were not on the scene. There were mountain bikes and road bikes and hybrid bikes, commuter bikes, that kind of thing. But the drop bar, mountain bike geometry, frame bike with drop bars was a complete novelty. Salsa was one of the only companies making bikes like this. There were others, but Salsa was kind of, in my mind, pioneering. Every single person tried to talk me out of buying this bike because they didn't know what it was. People would say, no, 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 you don't want that bike. You don't want that bike. You want a road bike and a mountain bike. And I said, no, I want one bike to do everything. Road, gravel, bikepacking, mountain biking, commuting, grocery getter, one bike. And everyone said, impossible. That's not it. I don't know anything about it, but you don't want that bike. And I bought it. And long story short, I've had it for 10 years. The best, most fun bike I've ever had. I've had road tires on it. I've had two and a half inch mountain bike tires. I've done single track, trail, improved trail, fire road. I've done uh, overnight trips on the bike. I've done long road rides. I use it to get groceries. I've done all kinds of things on this bike. It's the best thing I've ever had. And it was the first titanium bike I ever had. And I probably put somewhere between twelve and 15,000 miles on it. And so I'm riding, I'm three miles away from the house, and all of a sudden, it bike, I just feel this like shift. And as I'm each pedal stroke, it's, it felt like the bearings in the bottom bracket had gone, and the whole pedal structure was moving. And I pulled over, and I grabbed the back wheel, and I moved it side to side, and it moved like four inches. 
And I thought, oh, I blew the rear hub and the bearings are all gone. And then I was like, mm, no. And I looked down and the frame had completely split. Now, I was not mad. I was not disappointed. My first thought was, man, I got 10 years out of this. Like, what else have I gotten 10 years out of? You know, maybe my car, depending, the van's only three years old now, but are getting close to four. But, you know, 10 years for something I use on a daily basis, what else has lasted that long? My computers know, my sunglasses know, my phones know, my cameras know. Nothing has lasted. So I was stoked. I was like, man, I got 10 years out of it. This is great. So I immediately went online and I started looking at, a, at bikes to buy. And I looked at Salsa and I've, I've looked at 30 other brands and everything is sold out or hard to get or on back order or whatever. And, and I looked and um, Canyon Bikes made a bike called a Grizzle and they had it in stock in my size. And I was like, point, you know, it's like point and shoot. You, just, you buy it, it ships to you, you put it together and you're ready to go. And I thought, okay, and I'm spending less than two grand. I can get a cool bike for less than two grand. At the last second, my wife goes, why don't you reach out to Salsa? And I said, look, it's 10 years. Like, what are they going to do? But I thought, you know what? Maybe they want to see the bike because it could help them learn about why it broke. And maybe they could use that data for future bikes. So I did. I reached out to Salsa and said, look, I broke this. It's been the best bike I've ever had. I loved it. Had a great time with it. Um, do you guys want images of the bike? And a guy named Joe wrote back and said, here's five questions. You know, um, uh, what kind of riding do you do? How many miles on the bike? Um, where did you buy it? Do you have a picture of the complete bike? All these different things. And so I did. I sent it in, said this, 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 and this. He wrote back and said, look, this is way outside of the warranty, but I'm going to replace this under our goodwill program. And I was like, I had to read the email like three times. I'm like, it almost sounds like he's going to send me a new frame. And I wrote him and said, is this actually happening or am I imagining this? And he said, no, I'm going to send you a new frame. So I said, holy cow. And I told him where to send it to Sincere Cycles here in Santa Fe to a guy named Bailey, who's an amazing dude and a great writer because I can't swap all the parts. And I want to do a major upgrade, components, rims, tires, uh, wheels, tires, seat post, all that stuff. It's been, you know, these are old. I want to get newer stuff and I want to get lighter stuff. And so I wrote him, and then I thought, oh, they're going to give me an old, an old frame. You know, that makes sense to give me something. But would they even have an, a 2014 frame around? That doesn't make sense. So I wrote him and said, what am I getting, actually? And he said, we're going to give you the new titanium frame that you see on the site. And I was like, that's talk about above and beyond. I, I mean, I'm so programmed now into thinking, I'm always expecting the worst of people are going to like, this is not going to happen or whatever. And again, I did not expect them to do this. I was firmly planted on going and buying another bike and probably two bikes. I was thinking about getting the salsa repaired and turning it into a single speed fat tire. So single speed, like 2.6 inch tire uh, mountain bike with drop bars. I thought that'd be kind of fun to have. And I could use that for grocery shopping and, and for the trail network around my house and then buy another bike that I would use for most of my faster road and gravel riding. But then I went back to the, I just want one bike for everything. So the new frame is coming. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with it. I have to go talk to um, the, the guy at um, the owner of Sincere because he knows a hell of a lot more about bikes than I do. And I need to think about replacing the wheels, definitely replacing the group set with either Shimano GRX or XTR or some SRAM thing that I don't know about because I don't know that much about components. And I want to get lighter. I want to get it faster. And um, I'm, I'm in love that I've still got a titanium bike. So Salsa came through in a major 
way and I got to give props to them for doing so. I was stunned. I'm still stunned. And um, there is hope, people. There's hope. For every Ron DeSantos, there's Joe at Salsa to, count, to counterbalance um, the good and the evil in the world. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Salsa. I'm going to make a whole film about this, by the way, about swapping this out. And um, that's it. Okay, the last point I'm going to make, because we're right at an hour, is I was in Albania for the second time a couple of months ago, the beginning of summer, doing a, teaching a workshop. I'm slated to go back in May of next year to teach another set of workshops. I love it there. It's an incredible country, and it's a completely misunderstood country in the United States. Most Americans don't know where it is. They don't know anything about it. They don't know the history. All they know, it's, it's somewhere over there. So when I came back, I was um, constantly bombarded by people talking about danger. You know, oh, I can't believe you went to Albania. How dangerous was it? That's a very American thing to think that everything here is rosy and everything over there, wherever there is, is dangerous. And I would say to people, Santa Fe is a lot more dangerous than Albania. And I would get these looks, these puzzled looks of people that would say, that you could see them thinking, and they would go, Santa Fe? You don't mean Santa Fe, New Mexico, do you? And I'd say, yes, Santa Fe, New Mexico is far more dangerous than Albania. And they just, this happened again and again and again. They cannot comprehend it, that that is a true statement. A friend of mine, to prove my point, was carjacked at gunpoint at 1.30 in the afternoon in a grocery store parking lot, middle of the day with people all around. This happened last week. Armed carjacking, they stole his brand new Toyota Tacoma pickup, and the guy just walked up to him and said, I don't care about you. I will murder you if you don't give me the keys. My bud's like, okay, I gotcha. Here are my keys, and was carjacked at gunpoint. I never once have so far in all of the places I've been in Albania felt even, even that shadow of I'm in, a, I'm in a dicey spot. I need to watch myself. I've never felt that. In Santa Fe, you have to constantly watch your stuff. There's burglaries. There's armed robberies. There's carjackings. There's home invasion. It happens here all the time, and it always has. This has always had an element of crime here. It's a poor state. There's a lot of people who are hurting, and there is a long-standing um, sort of history of crime, drug trafficking, all that stuff here. So it's just bizarre to me that Americans still are living under this idea that, you know, and look, there are places in the U.S. that are safe, and there's a ton of places that aren't. And so we keep pointing a finger at other people or regions and saying, you know, you guys don't know what's happening, or we're the good guys, you're the bad guys. It's really not accurate. So before you go thinking that we have it, like, great here all the time, you got to realize what the rest of the world is like. And I think that there's, I have quite a few friends who fall into the, um, you know, the, the group of they don't travel and they're very fearful of the rest of the world and they watch TV and they listen to what's happening and they think, oh, those places are all bad and they're dangerous and evil. It's really not that accurate. So do yourself a favor and bone up on your uh, world history and your current events because places like Albania are fantastic and they're absolutely gorgeous. You know, the food is great. The people are friendly. The countryside is incredible. It is like the north and the south of the country is literally like going to the Canadian Rockies where you've got these incredible mountain landscapes with hardly any people at all compared to the U.S. So it's just fantastic. That's it for this week. That's for What It's Worth podcast. I'm glad you were here, and I will be back eventually with another episode.